You know when you sin greatly and you know you've sinned? You feel like a hypocrite going back to God for help, don't you? You feel like, here I am. Because, you know, you're not a nice person anymore. You've kind of proved it to yourself. And somewhere in the back of our minds, we know that God blesses good people and he curses bad people. But you know, that isn't biblical. That God does not bless good people. He would if he could find a good person. He would bless that good person, but he can't find any good people. So he blesses bad people. But we have a problem with this, that God would bless a bad person such as I. So we think, how can I expect God to help me? And the answer to that is, there is no other savior. God is a lot better than you give him credit for. He is loving kindness and truth. Those are two things that you must have to have a relationship. You need strong, faithful love, and you need truth. Now, in Hebrew, this has the idea of firmness, unchangingness, because the truth never changes. So if you have love and you have truth and faithfulness, that is the basis for relationship. And this is who God is. Now, God uses the wrath of man and difficult circumstances to discipline his people, to correct, but he doesn't use them to destroy because he is faithful and because he is love. So in this chapter, David's son Absalom attacks. He attacks his father with deception and corruption and hatred and bitterness. And David goes into great difficulty. And a lot of it is his own making. But David responds to God in humility. And depending upon God, that God is love and that God is truth. He's depending on loving kindness and truth to preserve him. And it looks like in this chapter, evil has a head start. Evil is winning. But loving kindness and truth will prevail. Because God is loving kindness and he is truth and he will not fail. So that's what we're looking at this morning. I'm reading in 
2 Samuel 15. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now here, Absalom is working really hard to deceive the nation and overthrow and kill David. He's a hard worker. He projects this image of himself as royal. When you get 50 guys to run in front of your chariot, and they run in a line. They don't just, you know, run like a mass. Like, what are those things they do in, in Spain where they uh, run ahead of the bulls? That's a little unorganized. What's more impressive is that you get 50 guys, but you line them up two by two. And so they're running together, and hopefully they run in step. But that's pretty impressive when you see 50 guys running, and you know, ooh, somebody's coming. And then up comes... Absalom, and he's the most beautiful guy in Israel. And it's impressive. And this is what royalty does. And he's sort of projecting this image. I am royalty. And everybody looks and goes, wow, I wish there were cameras. I would take a picture right now. But they won't be invented for another 2,500 years. So I only wish they could save this moment forever and post it on Instagram. The message is, when you look good, you are good. And that's what Absalom is projecting. And he wants to look good because he is the deceiver. And deceivers don't let it hang out. Hey, I'm a lousy, lousy, rotten deceiver. You want to look fabulous on the outside. So look at him. This is a constant practice of Absalom. Every day, he gets up early, and he stands by the way to the gate. Now, the gate is where you do business in a city. And he's right there to intercept people, coming to see the king about a legal matter. And he's very interested in them. He goes, hey, where are you from? I'm from, you know, this tribe in Israel. You know what? I love those guys. What a great tribe in Israel. Wow. And then he says, you know what? You got a case here. I mean, you're right. 
And here's the problem. You're not going to get justice. I'm really sorry about this, but there's no deputy of the king to hear yet. He's not quite slamming the king, but he is slamming the fact that nobody's going to listen to you. So listen, pal, you and me, bud, just want you to know I understand and I care. It's such a drag, you're not going to get justice. And I'm telling you, man, if I were running the show, I would get you exactly what you need. I can see your need. And the guy just, you know, prostrates himself and he goes, no, 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 get up. Come here, bud. I love you. You know what I mean? He's like turning it on. And he does does this for four years. He gets up early and the guys start talking. You know what? Every time you go to Jerusalem, he's right there. I mean, he's early, he's up, he's not lazy. He's not like government. (laughs) He's like, he cares. That's, gosh, I've never, he's gorgeous, but he cares. You know what I mean? Now, you look at verse 6. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You know, it sounds like he's trying to woo them and transfer affection from David to himself. It's interesting that this same idiom, steal the heart, is translated in Genesis 31 as Jacob deceived Laban. Literally, it says he stole his heart, but he didn't steal his heart. He just didn't tell him he was leaving. See? So there's something worse going on here than Absalom is stealing affection. He is deceiving Israel. There's a purpose to this. Because he wants to project the image that he cares and that he's busy and he's not lazy and he will do things for them because he wants them to support him when he overthrows the nation. He's not interested in justice. He's interested in overthrowing the country and killing his father. Does everybody get this? And now he's ready to spring his trap on David. In verse 7, Now it came to pass after 40 years, and if you look in your margin, it says four. I think that's more the case. That Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently 
and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Okay, Absalom lies to David. May I have permission to pay my vow to the Lord? That sounds really innocent, doesn't it? I want to worship the Lord because I made a vow while I was there in Geshur. I got so desperate and I thought, you know, I may never see home again. And God, if you bring me back to Jerusalem, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to offer sacrifices and give you thanks from the bottom of my heart. So may I have permission to go. Son, go in peace. Thanks. Now that sounds really sincere, doesn't it? But see, now he can go to Hebron and said, I'm here with David's permission. That's different. Now, you know, this is six years after Absalom came back from exile to Jerusalem. Six years. Isn't that kind of a long time to wait? And you know, it says in Deuteronomy 23, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Absalom waited six years to pay his vow to the Lord? See, there's something kind of stinky going on already. Just saying. But Absalom sends these spies, these messengers throughout all the tribes to be there to interpret the trumpet. And see, the trumpet's going to blow a signal. And when the trumpeter hears the signal, he blows another one. And it goes all throughout the land, and somebody pops up and says, I know what that means. That means Absalom is king in Hebron. And everybody goes, huh, well, I thought David was king. Oh, well, you know, things happen, and I guess that's what it means. So I guess we got a new king. Well, okay. Sounds good. In the absence of internet, telephone, you just have to accept it. Okay, I guess things happen, and I don't hear about it, but who am I, you know? So everybody believes that Absalom is king in Hebron. And then here are these 200 prominent people from Jerusalem. And he brings them with him, and he wants to bring them to Hebron. And go, I guess I'll get to go with the most handsome guy in Israel. Cool. And they don't know what's going on. But when they get the message, they go, okay, I guess we're here. And Absalom says, you know, I came here with David's blessing. Okay, I guess we accept this. Now, you know Hebron. Hebron is where David was crowned king of Judah in the very beginning. This is before Israel 
crowned him king. The tribe of Judah made David king right there in Hebron. So this is the heart of David's acceptance and popularity. And this is where Absalom is going to kick David out. Right in the heart of David's acceptance. And then, look at the, uh, the peace de resistance is getting Ahithophel the Gilanite to work for you. Now, Absalom corrupts Ahithophel to work for him because he's David's advisor. And as we'll see later, both David and Absalom, and anybody who knows Ahithophel, takes his word like the word of God. This guy, for all intents and purposes, is the smartest guy in the world. He's also the father of a lamb, one of David's select group of warriors known as the 30. And Eliam is the father-in-law of Uriah the Hittite. He's Bathsheba's father, and Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And And Absalom comes to Ahithophel and says, you know what? How'd you like to get me in a spot where I can pay David back? How'd you like to get me where I want to be so I can kill him? You interested? And Ahithophel says, Yeah, let's kill him. I'll help you get there. So now the most beautiful guy in Israel has the smartest man in the world helping him to get there. The conspiracy is growing and it's strong. So then, look at verse 13. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all of his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the Gittites. Six hundred men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today, since I know not where? Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, 
And as my Lord the King lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Ittai, go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. There was Zadok also, and all the Levites with him, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. We'll stop there. David hears the news. Slap! The trap is snapped. Absalom's on his way. And he does just the opposite to Absalom. He corrupts no one. He deceives no one. He betrays no one. You know, he's lived his whole life in loving kindness and truth. Ever since he was a kid, He trusted in the Lord. And when the Lord came to him and says, you are to be king in Israel, David said, you have to make me king. He's not going to go out and grab it and make himself king. So this is the way he's lived with the Lord. And we've watched that. And David has gone from strength to strength more fame, more popularity, more victory, and then this awful sin and chaos, confusion, grievous. There's no doubt about that. It was bad. And now he's in great adversity, difficulty. Everything is chaos and upheaval. He knows Absalom is out to kill him. He's about to lose everything. How does he react to this? Does he say, well, I kind of blew it there. Can't go back to loving kindness and truth. And everything is dog eat dog right now. And we're, we're playing dirty here. And Absalom has just really done a dirty on me. He lied to me. He's been planning this overthrow for who now knows how long. And people are being corrupted all around me. It's more difficult now. So maybe I just got to be like everybody else and be nasty and dirty back. Because there's nothing else. If I don't play dirty, I'll never make it. See, he doesn't do that. 
You know, the only way to live is in loving kindness and truth. There is no other way to live. And even if you have to regroup from sin, from failure, you get right back to loving kindness and truth. And David now begins to deal in loving kindness and truth. Right there in a terrible situation, he has to flee for his life. But you notice, he abandons Jerusalem. Part of this is tactics. It's a surprise. He's not prepared. You know, it would be ridiculous to try to hunker down in the city and try to fight your way out. There's no way. You're, you're down to siege warfare, and that's, they just spend all the time waiting and until you run out of food and people get sick. You know, they catapult dead cows in there and try to give you anthrax and all kind of stuff. So it's just an attrition, and everything gets destroyed in the meantime. So David says, I'm not going to hold on to Jerusalem. I'm not going to hold on to being king. Because John the Baptist said, a man can receive nothing unless it comes from above. Now, you know, that's way in the future still. But that's the same principle that David lives by. You know, God made him king. Now, what if God wants to fire him? Can God do that? Do you know that David would rather lose the kingdom and stay in relationship with God than keep the kingdom and be out of relationship with God? Saul opted for the kingdom. I want the kingdom above all else. David says, you know what? God made me king. He can unmake me as it suits him. So I'm not going to grasp, defend, fight, scream, kick, scratch. I don't want to sin against God. I don't want to lay waste this city just so I can stay king. I'd rather preserve it, preserve the people. God can bring me back. So on principle, he abandons Jerusalem. That's loving kindness and truth. And you notice that he leaves 10 concubines to keep the house. There in verse 16. Does it on purpose? You think, really? At a time like this? Okay, listen up, you ten. I want you to go around the house and sweep up. I want you to straighten everything up. Give the toilets a good swish. Really? At a time like this? You need to keep house? You think Absalom can't do this on his own? But see... David knows that Absalom will take them for his own because that's part of what God said to him 
in chapter 12. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And now David knows where it's coming from. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. So you know what David is doing here? He is deliberately submitting to the discipline of God. It has to happen. So he says, all you ten, I want you to keep house. Will you do that for me? And they go, yes. And he leaves and they go, keep house? Can't Absalom do this on his own? They're wondering too, but David knows and he's submitting to it. Then you notice about the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and the Gittites here. Who are these guys? They're all Philistines. The Cherethites and the Pelethites were his bodyguard. And so they go with him. But David talks to Ittai, this guy from Gath, and he gives them the option. And he tells them, you guys don't have to come with me. You know? It's like, you're exiles, I get that, but I'm an exile now myself. And just when you felt like maybe you had a place, you don't have to just leave and follow me, just be under the next king. You know? It's going to be dangerous running around with me. So... He's not going to require them to do this. And, you know, this is the thing about God, that he abounds in loving kindness and truth. And you, you need this for a relationship. In Proverbs 3, verse 1, it says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Again, this is loving kindness and truth. Chesed and emeth. He says, bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Now that's how you deal with people. You always deal with people in loving kindness and truth. You keep faith with people. And David is a man after God's own heart. So David values relationships. He values that loving kindness and truth. You don't require that from people, they have to give it voluntarily. So he gives Ittai the choice. Says, you know what? If you don't want to do this, I get it. You have to want to do this. And Ittai says, I do want to. It's a disadvantage for him to stay with David but he's going to do it. You know, this is why he's not with the Philistines. You know how it works with the Philistines? You hang 
you're chummy. Everything looks like it's okay. You're going great. You, you got these relationships and all. And then something happens. And, well, when it's convenient, they throw you under the bus and they gaslight you. And you go, I thought I was in. No, it just becomes more convenient to get rid of you and blame it on you. And you're stuck. Does everybody get that? That's how it works in the world. We're buds until it becomes inconvenient and difficult, and then it's easier to just get rid of you. And we're watching that happen, aren't we? We're watching it happen in the world that even when, when liberal and very free thinkers start to say something that is not part of a narrative that is accepted by the power base or whatever, all of a sudden, they're persona non grata. They're out. And it's like, wait a minute. I'm not one of these conservative right-wing fascists. I'm just saying something. But you can't even have an opinion. If you don't hold to the accepted party line, boom, you're on. It doesn't matter who you are. And so there's no way these guys are conservative, but, you know, they just say something. And all of a sudden, that's it. They're out. And you see that all the time. And you think, well, what's with that? And the answer is, there's not much relationship there. There's not much loving kindness, and there's not much truth. So, you know, you get that with the Philistines, you expect that, but you know what? You don't get that from David. And that's why Ittai says, I want to stay with you. Because you deal in loving kindness and truth. And to me, that's worth more than the difficulty I'm going to go through because I stick with you in faithfulness and truth. And you know, if I'm with you in life, I'll be with you in death because I want to go where you're going. I want to go to the God of loving kindness and truth. I think that's pretty phenomenal. Now, he gets done with that, and then here comes the priests with the Ark of the Covenant, and they want to go with David. They assume that David would want to take it with him. When you think about the Ark of the Covenant, there's probably no more valuable artifact in all of Jerusalem. Just as an object in itself, there's no price for it. I mean, it was made by Bezalel, the son of Uri, at the direction of Moses. And it has the two stone tablets written by the finger of God. There is no more valuable artifact that we know of 
but it symbolizes the presence of God, and that's something even more amazing. And at the top of the mercy seat, which is a slab of solid gold, and you've got the cherubim with their wings facing in, and the presence of God. This is a symbol of the presence of God. Can you imagine what a statement that would make when Absalom comes into the city and you got, you got everything except the ark? Uh-huh. We got the drop on you. You can have all that junk. We got the presence of God. But, you know, David says, take it back. He's not thinking about anything he needs, and he's not thinking about the ark as some kind of a, a rabbit's foot, you know. I can't lose the ark, because if I got this, I got God, see? He goes, nah, I don't need that, because God is everywhere. And I'm going to trust in God, not a thing. And you know what? That ark isn't going to save Absalom either. It's God that's going to save me. It's God that's going to bring me back. If he brings me back, I'm coming back. If he doesn't bring me back, I can't come back. It all depends on God. And so he's not trusting in anything but God. And that's how you live. Depending on God's loving kindness and God's truth that he does not change. And therefore, we are not consumed. Now, this last little bit here. This is verse 30. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, then you'll become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now be your servant, then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Indeed they have there with them their two sons, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. So, you know, David doesn't trust in people, right? But then there's an aspect where you do depend on people whom you have a relationship with in loving kindness and truth. That's what they're there for. That's the meaning of a relationship is help 
when you're in a difficulty. It's easy to be friends when everything is groovy and somebody's ordering pizza. Everybody's friends around a pizza. But when trouble hits and you need help, you depend on those people who have a relationship with you in loving kindness and truth. And so he's asking Zadok and Abiathar to stay in the city. And be apolitical, I guess. But then also keep their eyes open and send word by their sons. That's a big ask, don't you think? Here's a bigger ask. David finds out Ahithophel is in there. And he goes, great. I'm up against Einstein with an attitude. He wants to kill me. And so he prays to God to make Ahithophel's counsel foolishness. Is that an ask? Lord, mess it up. Please, mess it up. Now listen. In Isaiah 44, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of the boasters to fail, making fools out of the diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. Can David pray, God, please mess up Ahithophel's advice? Yes, he can. In loving kindness and truth. Mess it up, Lord. And then here comes Hushai. He says, you know what? I got a big ask for you. Go in there and mess up the smartest man in the world's advice. Okay. All right. I'm going to go into this city known as David's friend and see if I can't thwart Ahithophel. Okay, let's do it. Now, only loving kindness and truth could send that guy in there. And you notice that Hithophel isn't saying, Ooh, that's bad stuff, man. I'm going to go to the Philistines until this whole thing blows over. No, he, he's David's friend. And a friend is made for adversity. That is the El Rongo time to say, oh, I'm done. I'm out of here. So because he's friends with David, he's going right into it and risk his life. Now, doesn't this look hopeless? I mean, Absalom has all the advantages. He's been planning this for years. He's got the element of surprise, superior numbers, notable people as allies, communication across the nation. 
And it looks like David has given him even more advantages. No resistance, a peaceful city, ten concubines, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the priests, and even David's personal friend. David has to deal with the shock of betrayal. Motivations of hatred and revenge. And he knows that ultimately it comes out of his own sin. And he has to live with, oh man, what would have happened if I hadn't done that? Can you imagine how it comes back to just beat him up? So what advantage does David have? The only advantage that David has is that he's trusting in loving kindness and truth. And that's the way he's lived his life. That's what he is continuing in. Because there's nothing else. Now you know, you're in a difficult situation and you think, can I really depend on God? Do I have any ground to depend upon God. And, you know, the answer is, this is still God's universe. And He is the only God and the only Savior there is. It's Him or nothing. So that's why we read... In Psalm 33, a king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. So this is what you do. This is how you live. You depend on the unchanging loving-kindness of God. You receive His discipline because He deals with you as with sons. There is no son whom His Father does not discipline. And if we don't receive that discipline, we're not sons, we're illegitimate. So we want to submit to that. But he's not doing this to kill us. He's doing this to refine us and make us like Christ. So do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Let's pray.
thank you, Heavenly Father, for loving kindness and for truth. And thank you especially for sending Jesus to die for us, to take away our sins in loving kindness and truth. We thank you, Lord, that that's the basis of our relationship with you, and that never changes. And we think about all the difficulties that we face today, the things that seem like they will never end, and we lift them up to you because we believe you that all these things are temporary. But your salvation is forever. So we pray that you would work all the situations that we're going through right now out for good. Because you raised Jesus from the dead. And we trust you're going to work that out in us. Thank you for loving us with everlasting love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.